America's conflict with the Taliban in Afghanistan, now well into its second decade, is not going well. The U.S. military has called it a stalemate. During his recent retirement speech, General John Nicholson, Jr., who first oversaw the military effort for President Trump, said it is time for this war in Afghanistan to end. But most wars don't end. They are won, or they are lost. Has America lost this fight against the jihadi group closely aligned with al-Qaeda? If so, what are the consequences? To answer these and related questions, I am joined by Tom Jocelyn, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and senior editor of FTD's Long War Journal, and Bill Roggio, also a senior fellow at FTD and editor of FTD's Long War Journal. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Tom, let me start with you. Your thesis, and it's in a recent piece you did for the Weekly Standard, a very good piece, is that America has lost the war in Afghanistan, that essentially uh, it's over. Um, I want to talk about why you believe that's the case. But before I, before we do, maybe just very briefly, what was this war about way back when after 9-11? And has the theory of victory changed? Has the war gone through phases? I think it has under different presidents. How has it changed? How, how have we evolved to where we are now? Well, you know, my conclusion that the war has been lost is based on a very simple observation, which is that we invaded Afghanistan in 2001, late 2001, to topple the Taliban regime, remove its government from power, and, you know, basically send it send it packing. And here as we sit here today in November 2018, uh, more than 17 years later, the Taliban, because of Bill's work, we know, uh, contests their controls up to 60-some-odd percent of the country, uh, which I think is a fairly good estimate. The military would say it's a little less than 50 percent. But regardless, it's about half or more of the country is now contested or controlled by the Taliban. So in the original terms of the war in Afghanistan, which was to destroy the Taliban regime and end it, um, we failed because they're coming back into power in large portions of the country. Um, and they are um, – right now, our whole strategy is purely uh, based on the idea that we can negotiate some sort of face-saving deal that will allow us to leave without the appearance of losing. This became a concept in military circles and intelligence circles, which I think is nonsensical. The bottom line is that wars are won or lost. The Taliban is well positioned to win this war at the moment. Uh, they uh, There's no effort by the U.S. to actually defeat them militarily. We're not hunting down Taliban senior leaders in Pakistan. We're not even sanctioning them. We're not uh, going after uh, Taliban strongholds throughout much of the rural part of the country. Basically, what you have is uh, sort of the U.S. is assisting its Afghan allies in a defensive crouch throughout much of the country uh, trying to stave off the sort of the Taliban onslaught. Um, by any reasonable metric then, the war is lost. Uh, we have failed in our original objective because the Taliban is poised to come back to power and we have failed um, 
to basically build up an Afghan government. There are many reasons for this. Uh, certainly, it's not all our fault, but there certainly is the case that we have failed to build up a stable Afghan government that could supplant and keep the Taliban at bay in the long haul. And I think upon the U.S. withdrawal, which I think, according to my sources, is coming or announced withdrawal is coming uh, sooner rather than later, um, the Taliban is poised to make even more gains. So the war has been lost. Now, the only way you can say that it has been won really is that a, another 9-11 style attack has been prevented from Afghan soil. Um, that, I guess, is a very narrow definition of victory. Of course, the threats have spread out from different locations now. Uh, you know, there are multiple now jihadi threats to the U.S. homeland and Western interests in Europe from different theaters. Um, but it's interesting um, from their perspective, from al-Qaeda's perspective, which is the part of the story that everybody wants to sort of leave out. Al-Qaeda has invested heavily in the Taliban resurgence. What they've been telling their followers for years is that the Islamic government is going to be resurrected and that this is the nucleus of a new caliphate. Remember, they oppose the ISIS caliphate, the Islamic State. They want to have their new caliphate they want to build together, uh, build with these different emirates around the globe. Now, this is mostly fantasy. Uh, they're not going to do this anytime soon, but they have raging insurgencies that are fighting for it. So this fantasy, this idea actually does motivate them, which is the big mistake that certain officials have, have made in the past is pretend because it doesn't look like an imminent reality that it doesn't matter. And of course, it does matter to them. In any event, Al-Qaeda has been telling its followers around the world for years now that the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is the nucleus of this new emirate that all these guys are fighting for around the globe. So this is going to have big impact. And so, yes, we prevent another 9-11, but we haven't prevented, we haven't severed the Taliban-Al-Qaeda relationship, and Al-Qaeda is very much heavily invested in resurrecting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Bill, the U.S. military is often said to be, and I don't dispute this, the mightiest military in human history. How is it possible that the mightiest military in human history can be defeated by what is essentially a ragtag uh, army funded um, by, uh, we could talk about by whom, but that it is a non-state actor at this point, the Taliban. Al-Qaeda is a non-state actor. This is not even a nation state we're up against. How can the U.S. military not be equal to this challenge? Yeah, there, it, it's indisputable that technologically and organizationally the U.S. military is the most dominant force on the power. Problem is, is we're not acting like it. We, we don't have in Afghanistan and uh, frankly in other hot spots we're engaged. We, we're not fighting the win. Without the will to win, this is how you get to where we are in Afghanistan today. And uh, that's a, a result of political leadership. I believe if the military is given the directive to win the war and, and, and win the war at any cost that we'd be, would be able to do that. Unfortunately, that's been viewed to be as uh, not politically expedient. So part of having, you know, of winning in Afghanistan would require severing the Taliban-Pakistan ties, um, forcing Pakistan to end its uh, support of the Taliban, safe havens. Um, it, it trained, the Taliban trains there, shelters there, their families live there, training camps, recruiting. You know, they receive uh, war material finance from from Pakistani military. We'd have to we'd have to stop this. And, and since our government has refused to take this head on, to take this and other problems. And believe me, Afghanistan is a very difficult situation. Um, it's a it's a very uh, it's a culture we're not accustomed to a different language. We but we the United States could overcome this if we committed to our political and military will to do this. But we haven't. We haven't since day one. I think this was really evident when the U.S. failed to pursue al-Qaeda at Tora Bora. The, the, really, that could have been the, the seminal battle in this war that we could have decapitated al-Qaeda and gotten bin Laden and Zawahiri. So who, Zawahiri, al-Qaeda's leader, who still lives to 
to lead al-Qaeda to this day. But since we we tried to outsource that to local Afghan warlords who let al-Qaeda slip and Taliban leaders slip away from Tora Bora. And it, it, so we never really – again, we, we, we didn't commit to win. We haven't. We didn't commit from day one to win. We and that is really the root of our problem here. Either one of you on this one. I mean, I'm a little surprised and I guess a little disappointed. I thought that Secretary of Defense Mattis, formerly General Mattis, um, once he was in office, he would say failure is not an option for this military, for my military. This is my life, and that he would insist. That we, again, not that we win every battle. You can win wars without winning every battle. You can win every battle and still lose wars. I guess Vietnam was sort of an example of that. But I would have thought that he would have had a, a strong hand and a strategy to play so that he would not be the defense secretary uh, overseeing what could be um, a, a very humiliating withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan for the U.S. military, however whatever, how, how, however much lipstick you put on the pig. So the reality has been the opposite in terms of what your expectation was for Secretary of Defense Mattis. Um, and I'll give you a very stark example. Um, the Taliban leader, Habatul al-Ghanzada, released a statement on August 18th. You can check this. We've posted it at Long War Journal, an English translation from the Taliban itself of this statement. And Secretary of Defense Mattis has described this as the most forward-leaning statement by a Taliban they'd ever seen and, and held it up as a strong example of the prospect for peace. The Taliban was really willing to consider a real peace that would allow us to sort of leave Afghanistan and everything would be fine. I defy anyone to read through that statement and tell me how it's a forward-leaning peace proposal. It is nothing of the sort. It simply demands once again or reiterates the Taliban's demand once again that the Americans leave. And in fact, the only way in which it's forward-leaning is the Taliban leader, Akhundzada, is telling his men, explicitly tells his men, that they should prepare to rule over more of Afghanistan going forward as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and their Sharia-based sort of governance, which is a draconian sort of system of governance that they have. Um, that, to me, speaks to the cognitive dissonance here, that the Secretary of Defense would hold up a statement by the Taliban to say this says, see, this is a path to peace that's being offered here. And then you read the statement and you see it's nothing of the sort. I think it tells you how, why we have taken such a grim view of what's going on right now. And, and I'm going to look at this from a from a, a thirty thousand foot view. There's a pervasive view in the U.S. military that these small wars or insurgencies or guerrilla wars, whatever you want to cost them, that they're they're breaking the military. This has been a view that's been long held. The uh, the counterinsurgency crowd, which you know came to the fore in Iraq in 2006, seven, eight for the surge, they really were the minority. They, they, in the U.S. military, they were the ones who did want to try to win the war in Iraq and were proposing ideas for us to do it. But there was a lot of resistance in the military leadership. These wars are, are resource intensive. They're costly. They're lengthy. Um, they slowly bleed the forces with casualties, with either deaths or, or even or, or um, grave injuries. Uh, so that I, I think – you know, where did Mattis come down on all this? Well, you know, in Iraq, he was at the forefront of fighting and in Afghanistan as well as fighting these small wars. But we don't really know what his views are on them. And is, is was he part of the former crowd or was he of or was he part of the crowd that would that really opposed them or was he part of the crowd that supported them? I don't really know. But all I know is by his actions, he certainly has um, given all indications that Afghanistan is a war he'd like to put aside. You know, one view is that all, and it's a popular view, uh, certainly, um, well, in a lot of places, um, that wars have to end. Hmm. 
Another view might be to say, no, actually they don't, um, that it's kind of more like forest fires. There will always be forest fires, and you can have small forest fires, and a lot of them, or you can suppress those small forest fires and eventually have a really big one. It seems to me that we're taking the view as a society in the West generally uh, that, yeah, we end, we're, we're not going to have low-intensity conflicts uh, for years and years and years. We don't want that. But we're not recognizing the possibility that that means that we'll have a much greater intensity conflict eventually by letting all this tinder dry out in the sun. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think that wars traditionally end. I think they're won or lost. I think that's what – and I'm certainly no military historian, but I think it's a basic common sense to go back through history and that's that's what you observe. And I think the Taliban, what people have um, sort of lied to themselves about is the idea that the Taliban is fighting for something other than victory. And all of their statements say that that's what they're fighting for is the victory of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The idea that they're going – that they're going to achieve through negotiations, the U.S. is going to achieve through negotiations a state – that envisions something other than that, I think, is foolhardy. The bottom line is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban, may give us the so-called decent interval to leave. They may very well be willing to give that to us. We don't even know if they're willing to give that to us. But I guarantee that they'll extract other concessions in the meantime for that. And all such an interval would do really in the end is just delay their sort of further rise in Afghanistan. Now, do they take back the entire country? I don't know. But I, we know as we sit here right now, they contest or control half or more, up to 60-some-odd percent of the country. They're certainly the number one game in town um, at this point in terms of challenges to to rule and authority. And they've said over and over again that they believe that the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, their totalitarian regime, is the only legitimate ruler of Afghanistan, the only legitimate representative of the Af- Afghanistan. I think we should take them seriously when they say that, and we shouldn't pretend like we can end this war uh, in a way that doesn't lead to a loss. And that's why I've been writing in very stark languages, stark language, excuse me, that we've lost the war because they are fighting to win. And I'll give one other example. You know, in 2011, we tested the theory that you could end a war responsibly. Remember, Barack, President Barack Obama said, we're leaving Iraq and this is a responsible end to the war. We're leaving. Well, of course, we saw how that ended, didn't we? You know, over the next three years, uh, ISIS rose to a global phenomenon, you know, and, and became this menace, declaring a so-called caliphate over large portions of Iraq and Syria. Um, this was something that was dismissed in in a lot of defense circles and tones of circles. And, in court, and you can go back through President Obama's own rhetoric as just a local conflict. They're just local jihadis who are interested in local ma- uh, matters. And, and President Obama dismissed this at one point, describing the predecessor of the Islamic State as sort of a local mafia that's just interested in sort of their sort of racket. Well, we've seen that theory of the world uh, play out. It's been tested and it failed. Um, what I would warn here is I think that a withdrawal from Afghanistan may or may not have an ISIS-like effect, but it will have ramifications globally that are being underestimated. And al-Qaeda is still very much alive. They've invested heavily in, in resurrecting Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And there are many jihadis from West Africa to South Asia who genuflect to the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who has his own allegiance to the head of the Taliban, Habatul Akhundzada. And I think that you're looking at emboldening their movement and their cause by ha- allowing, having them declare victory in Afghanistan. Bill, is it possible that, okay, they, that the Taliban, being with some smart people, say, look, we can get the Americans to leave. That's our main goal here. And then let's not attack America or let al-Qaeda or anybody else attack America from a base on our soil because that will bring them back either 
with troops or with missiles or something like that. And we'll get to do what we want to do. Too bad for the Americans, but we will kill all the apostates and heretics. We'll be able to wipe out many of the, the Shia we don't like. We'll be able to make sure girls don't go to school anymore. We'll do the things we did before. We'll, we'll, we find people with radios. We'll smash them and then we'll flog them. We, we can do all these things we want to do as part of being a, an Islamic emirate as we see it. We just can't attack the Americans because we don't want that to happen again. Americans could say, well, you know what, that's good enough for us. We never really should have expected that we could modernize and, I would argue, civilize um, a society like Afghanistan. It just wasn't going to happen. We tried. We failed. But they're no threat to us. And isn't that what counts at this point? Yeah, that is the prevailing argument in uh, many circles in, in D.C. and beyond. Um, I think it's false. I think we uh, this idea that the Taliban is all of a sudden going to sever ties with Al Qaeda is uh, not sever ties just to be, to be or clear, even to say Al Qaeda. I understand you guys have ambitions, but be a little patient. We got what we want. And we don't you know, we, uh, we now have a we now have a building that we're operating from and we don't want the Americans to knock it down well, while we're sure. While we're in. But however, the, the Taliban has host hosted training camps for Al Qaeda um, and we've raided these camps and know that over the years. So these relationships still exist. Well, we shouldn't fool ourselves to think that these training camps are only being used locally. Historically, Al Qaeda use its camps are to uh, have a dual purpose to support the local insurgency, which it does with the Taliban. But also, it takes select members of those to conduct attacks and use what it calls external operations. I see no reason why this paradigm would change. Why, if the Taliban wanted to take the heat off itself? Why would it allow al-Qaeda to run training camps when it is trying to get the United States to withdraw? You know, I mean, a few things on this. I mean, one, so looking at it from al-Qaeda's perspective, there's this sort of fallacy in counterterrorism circles that al-Qaeda is only interested in attacking the West, which is very much wrong. They always saw attacking the West and 9-11 itself, in fact, as a step or a tactic toward their longer-term goals. And it's very clear from al-Qaeda's literature and their behavior and the operational data we have that al-Qaeda has invested heavily in resurrecting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That is, it invested heavily in helping the Taliban win this war in Afghanistan. That has been their principal mission, their principal goal in Afghanistan for many years. And it's true that some threats have come out of, out of Afghanistan toward CONUS, the continental United States. In the meantime, in fact, a very senior al-Qaeda leader was killed just days before the 2016 presidential election. And there's abundant intelligence that he was planning or involved in overseeing a, a plots in the West and potentially against the continental United States. But even he and everyone else around him, their principal mission has been to resurrect the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. And I think that speaks a lot to their motivations and their ideas and what they want to do and how the enemy gets a vote because this is something that's not been well understood. The other thing I would say to this is um, two, two quick points on this. So one, I think there's evidence that at times al-Qaeda has actually – issued a stand-down order when it comes to attempted attacking in the West. The reason is because they see the world is going their way and they don't want to disrupt that. Um, and that's something that al-Qaeda is patient enough to do. It does. I don't want to oversell the al-Qaeda threat in the West, certainly not. Um, but um, they certainly it's – not, it's not the case that they're constantly itching to attack us in the West and they could very well decide that now is not the time for that. But sometime in the future after they've secured victory in Afghanistan or elsewhere, then's the time to have a go at Afghanistan. And of course, they could, they could launch a, that type of plot from numerous safe havens at this point. But the second, the second point I was going to add to that is this, that um, you know, the Taliban is – the U.S. government has begged the Taliban for years to forswear al-Qaeda. 
to um, to say, you know, we're no longer in bed with Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is, is done. It's not part of our mission. They've never come close to saying that. Never come close. They 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 issue very ambiguous language, Weasley wording that their apologists read into. Like you know, we've never. They say they make a, they actually issue a lie. They say we've never had any um, desire to impact the surrounding countries or any other countries. We've never always been only focused on Afghanistan. Well, of course that wasn't true on 9/11, was it? I mean, the the 9/11 hijackers went through camps, by the way, that trained Al Qaeda fighters not just to hijack planes. Only a few of them were selected that mission. Most of the fighters were actually trained to fight alongside. Taliban against the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. You know, so Al Qaeda has been deeply embedded and in, involved in this mission all along on the Taliban's behalf. Something that a lot of people go a long way out of their way to try and deny. Um, but that—that's all said. That if if really the case, if it was really the case that the Taliban was separable from Al Qaeda or could forswear Al Qaeda and would renounce its sort of global mission, right? If that were really the case, it would be very easy for the Taliban to issue a statement to say that, wouldn't they? Now we shouldn't accept it at face value because, of course, they could lie. But what I'm saying is they won't even lie about it. They haven't even lied about it to issue a statement saying we're. We're not in bed with Al Qaeda, and that to me is the type of simple fact that sort of undermines. And of course, we have a lot of other evidence about what the actual relationship is between the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and that it's ongoing. But it says a lot that they won't even issue that lie. Arguably, President Obama's greatest foreign policy victory in eight years in office was the killing of Osama bin Laden. He didn't start the hunt for him, but he was president when uh, Osama bin Laden was taken out from uh, Abbottabad. Uh, Pakistan. Uh, theoretically, we are still fighting al-Qaeda. Of course, I remember you guys debating people like Peter Bergen about whether or not al-Qaeda had been decimated, whether or not it had been ruined because uh, Osama bin Laden was dead. I think we know at this point that you were right and those who said that al-Qaeda was gone or was on the ropes or was, uh, was down and almost out. They were incorrect in, in arguing that. But if we're still fighting uh, al-Qaeda after all these years, how is it that Ayman al-Zawahiri, who took over from Osama bin Laden, how is it that he's still alive and kicking? Go ahead. Well, you know, I always say about the old man, Ayman al-Zawahiri, you know, shouldn't we have – I mean, listen, the guy is an evil, you know, warlord. He's an evil terror chieftain, no doubt about it. But you got to have a little respect for him, understanding that he's been hunted by different international authorities since the 1980s. You know, now I'm pretty sure – that if the U.S. government and the Egyptian government and various other actors wanted to kill Tom Jocelyn, I don't think I would last 30 to 40 years on the lam. And yet this guy has. And not only has he, has he, has he lasted and has some sort of saving, this guy is putting out messages all the time. Every couple weeks now, either every week or every two weeks, he's putting out a message commenting on various affairs. He's had... He's actually had an editor got got in touch with him. Now, here used to release these ridiculously long-winded videos that nobody could pay attention to. Sleep. I mean, not even his family members could possibly listen to all this and think, boy, this guy is great. Um, so he, finally, Al-Qaeda gave him an editor, and he's been releasing these shorter messages, which are like five-minute long, five minute long sort of diatribes on various issues. Very clever. They finally solved the issue of the long-winded Zawahiri. Now, I don't want to oversell you know, sort of how important he is. But I think a lot of people have undersold how important he is. And he still, despite all the problems from ISIS, which were grave for his authority and for al-Qaeda's authority in the global jihadi movement, um, despite all of those issues and other issues and being tracked and losing other leaders and losing comrades and losing bin Laden and all these other issues, he still has thousands of jihadis, thousands, probably tens of thousands, maybe even seemingly more. But tens of thousands, I think, is a reasonable estimate of jihadis who, through the command chain of command, owe their allegiance to him. And I think that's something that has uh, been consistently underappreciated in terms of his ability to not only last and survive, but evolve and grow the organization in certain ways. 
Go ahead. Look, I I want to be very clear in my language here. I do not like al-Qaeda one bit, um, and I would love to see us defeat them. But that being said, you must uh, – you have to admire and respect their persistence and their ability to survive a global manhunt from, you know, with United States applying military intelligence capacity, leveraging foreign governments. You know, if it weren't so evil, they would be quite a resistance movement that you could really go, wow, look at that. You know, it's the stuff of novels. But the fact is they are evil. They want to kill individuals. And why is uh, why is O'Hiri still alive? Look, I – it's possible he's in Afghanistan. I strongly believe he's in, still in Pakistan. Where did we kill Osama bin Laden? That was a very daring thing that, and, and admirable thing that President Obama did. You can disagree a lot with, with his foreign policy, but that making that decision, if that – a lot could have went wrong there if, if bin Laden wasn't at that location. And, you know, I always – I expect if we are ever to come across Zawahiri, he's probably ensconced in some Pakistan, small Pakistani city – you know, he's not going to be in Keta or Karachi or someplace, but in some, you know, s- one of the smaller towns like Abbottabad where, where we got bin Laden. You know, it's possible, you know, again, it's possible he's transitioning in Afghanistan as well. But the fact is that his security is good enough that he survived for 17 plus years. And I think, you know, part of the problem with our drone campaign and our operations against Al Qaeda is it's had this sort of Darwinian effect of we're a survival of the fittest. We're creating more aware jihadists who are better at communications, at dodging surveillance and things like that. Some of that probably is with the help of states like Pakistan and some of that is coming organically within them. But this is something, you know, it's been a while since we, we killed a significant senior al-Qaeda leader in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Yemen or, or Somalia or any of these places. It's, it's these kills which would used to be on a regular basis are few and far between. Now, we don't really know because we're not inside. We don't know if that's because of reduction in targeting. I don't believe that. I believe that they are still being targeted. I think that they've gotten far more effective at dodging our surveillance capabilities, which I think we over-rely on the technology and under-rely on the human intelligence aspect. You know, consider this. World War II, we won. We demanded unconditional surrender. No question how that came out. Korean War. It was a draw. We, we we let it go with an armistice, and with the North North Korea is still a problem for us to this day. Vietnam, we lost the war, and a lot of people said, "Well, so what? It wasn't that big a deal." The long war that we're in now, as you call it, as we call it at FDD, we are, do not appear to be winning this war. Uh, we're certainly not winning it on the battlefield. In Afghanistan, I'm not sure we're winning it necessarily on other battlefields. We can discuss that, and I welcome your thoughts on that. But is it possible that we've given up the idea as a society, as a military, of winning wars? We'd rather have a draw, which means conflict resolution, uh, end to the war, or we lose because we don't seem to think that losing has such great consequences. So what if you lose a war? Maybe that teaches you not to get involved in the next one. Is that kind of where we have been heading? And are we are we heading into a swamp by thinking that? You know, I think you're absolutely right. I think the sometimes stated, often unstated assumption is that uh, these are wars that can't be won. 
And if you start from that premise that it can't be won, well, that, of course, affects all of your behavior and how you view things. And we've certainly acted in Afghanistan. You know, people talk about how we're there. It's 2018. We've been there 17 years. Most people don't realize that for most of that time, we have not even been trying to defeat the Taliban. Most of the time, militarily, there's been no real significant effort for us to directly defeat them. What I mean by that is since 2011, the main U.S. mission has been to prop up the Afghan government, the Afghan forces, for them to eventually defeat the Taliban. Well, that's very different than saying the Americans need to defeat the Taliban and put them on their back heel and, and affect the outcome. And you're seeing this across the board. This, this I mentioned it earlier, there was this sort of um, – novel idea that we could leave without losing that sort of gained currency in a lot of circles. And this led to the whole rhetoric in 2011 from President Obama saying he was bringing the Iraq war to a responsible end. And he promised to do the same thing in Afghanistan. He was going to bring it to a responsible end, the same, same words. Responsible for whom? I mean, it, it's responsible in the sense that, you know, anybody can say we're going to withdraw American troops and we're going to stop sacrificing blood and treasure for it. And maybe that's the right decision in some cases, right? But we've tested that when it comes to Iraq in 2011. We saw the aftermath. And I think that um, that example looms large over what is potentially going to happen with Afghanistan and the global jihadist movement once again. Again, it doesn't have to be on the scale of what ISIS did, but I think it's it's going to add a, a shot in the arm for the global – the al-Qaeda part of the global jihadist movement. And the bottom line is we have not been trying to defeat this in Afghanistan. Well, we've, we've, we now have all sorts of rationalizations and apologia for the Taliban. You have all sorts of nonsense spoken now on behalf of the Taliban to pretend it's something other than what it is. The moderate yeah. people yeah, of the, the Taliban. Yeah, the, yeah, as if there are big debates going on between the moderate and the radicals. We always have this, and we have it in Iran. They do it in The Iran, moderates, yeah, and then there are the conservatives, and the conservatives are the bad guys, but the moderates, they really want to get along with us. Yeah, and it's it's just nonsense. I mean, you know, listen, I mean, Siraj Haqqani is the number two leader of the Taliban, right? He's been in bed. He and his father helped groom al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's first generation of commanders went through the Haqqani network in Pakistan and Afghanistan to become al-Qaeda. They were, in some sense, the Haqqanis were al-Qaeda before al-Qaeda was, you know, and he's the number two warlord of the Taliban. Habatul al-Khanzada, the top tier, the number one guy, the emir of the faithful, as they call him, of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, of the Taliban, he sacrificed his son in a suicide bombing uh, against, against the enemies. Do you think that that's the type of man who is going to sit down and be moderate or peaceful or has intentions that are noble or that can somehow be um, reasoned with in a way that, that sort of brings affects an outcome here that's acceptable for the future of Afghanistan? I think quite clearly not. I think if you're willing to sacrifice your child in the suicide bombing, that says quite a bit about you in terms of who you are. But all these facts have to be swept under the rug and we, we invent – a Taliban in our minds. This is the West is very good at this. The West is very good at, at conjuring up phony Taliban's for us to envision as taking over in Afghanistan. And I think the very real Taliban that we witness, that we know about, that we see on a day to day basis, is in fact the real one. And uh, you know, if they do in fact come to power throughout much of Afghanistan once again, which we think they will, it will not be a positive for the Afghan people. Yeah, I, one of the challenges is show me a moderate Taliban, right? Name one. I, w I would love for someone to name me a, a moderate Taliban. Show me a moderate Taliban and, and you know, I'll show you a moderate Nazi. I mean, this is type of terminology is, is silly. Um, even those who they claim are moderates by some definition and they're not, these are guys who are guilty of war crimes, things like that. It's, it, it, it doesn't exist. And by the way, in what, what type of revolutionary movement do the moderates ever win out? against the extremists. Good point. Mm -hmm. I mean, so do we really think if there is this mythical moderate Taliban that it's going to somehow supplant 
the hardliners who control the military, the Suraj Akhanis, the Habitullahs of the world. He was the guy who provided religious justification because this is important, right? The, the fatwas to conduct the attacks. He's the guy who's provided religious justification for every suicide bombing in Afghanistan. And if you think he's moderate, then I don't even want to know what extreme looks like. The impression a lot of people, I think, get from the media is that we've got this war going on in Afghanistan, and there's a kind of a war going on in Syria. It's pretty bad. About 500,000 Syrians have probably been killed. We've got a war going on in Yemen, um, other places around. But these are all disconnected. Nobody seems to be, except you guys, I think, and I want to talk about this, connecting the dots and saying, oh, there's a larger picture here. What we're fighting, I would argue, is not terrorism. Uh, we're, what we're fighting, what we're fighting is jihadism, um, which is a very dynamic movement in the world right now. Uh, there is Sunni jihadism and there is Shia jihadism. Shia jihadism is championed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, both types of jihadism have very simple goals. The goals are to overthrow the West, to overthrow the United States' power, to uh, to destroy the uh, the Crusader Zionist uh, alliance, to use one of their phrases, and they intend to do this, and they they can do it tomorrow, great. But if it takes ten years or twenty years or fifty years, that's fine. After all, in a certain sense, jihadism it's not a new thing. It goes back, well, I would say about fourteen hundred years from when the first Islamic armies sprung out of Arabia and conquered most of the civilized world. It, creating one of the great empires of all history. I mean, they got all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way into what is now Morocco, and then up into Spain, and then all the way into what is now Pakistan, and eventually into corners of the Philippines and Malaysia and elsewhere. This was a, this was a major force in history. Americans don't know much about history. I find that most of the jihadis are very well versed in history. They know what they are trying to not just create but recreate, revitalize uh, because for a thousand years they were on top of the world and they think they should be again and they think we shouldn't be and they think we're not going to be and they have some arguments on their side. Yeah, I, I think that our, one of our greatest failings in this war is to treat them as separate wars and, and really we should be looking these – as Al-Qaeda does or as Iran does or, you know, as theaters within a greater war. I mean, if you look at, say, Iran's involvement in the jihad on the Iranian side, right? You have what it's doing in Lebanon against Israel. It's fighting in Yemen. It's fighting. It's supporting the Taliban against the United States. Then you look at what, you know, and then, of course, we could lay out the entire network of Al-Qaeda. They don't view these these conflicts as individual isolated conflicts and yet we do so we could extricate ourselves from the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan and because we're not looking at it as such we're not fighting this war properly and um, I think it's a big it's a it's one of the major reasons why why we are failing just to just to add to that I mean you know one of the things that we saw was this um you know, I, I go back to a speech that, that John Brennan, who was the senior counterterrorism advisor to uh, Barack, President Barack Obama at the time, he gave a speech where he called the uh, dream of the caliphate um, absurd and a feckless delusion. And he said, we're not going to um, organize our counterterrorism policies around this because it is an absurd and feckless delusion. Now, it is a fantasy in a lot of ways. It's a dark fantasy. And I don't think that they're on the verge of resurrecting a real caliphate at this moment, of course. But it's a fantasy that motivates them. 
You know, it's a fantasy. It's an idea that motivates them. And when we review the literature, of course, the Islamic State was claiming to have resurrected a caliphate that, f that fell in 1924. And that was what it was all about to say that there finally is a new caliphate back on the earth. And this was a this was an idea that motivated people around the globe to flock to their cause. Um, it's an idea that Al Qaeda continues to propagate to this day, saying that the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban's rule in Afghanistan, is going to be the nucleus of this new caliphate. You know, just recently we saw um, there's a video that came from the Turkestan Islamic Party. This is an Al Qaeda affiliate group that's fighting in Syria, and they were training their kids in Idlib, Syria. Um, and they're indoctrinating them in sort of the Al Qaeda style jihadist ideology. And this is, this is, these are Uyghurs who have tra traveled from an oppressive China where China's doing all sorts of horrible things, of course, to the, the Uyghur Muslim population. Um, and, and is fueling in some ways the grievances that, that the jihadis are going to try and capitalize on. In any event, they have this contingent in Syria that is, you know, holding these daily schooling for children. And the end of the session ends with something very telling. It was the, the lecturer explains to the children that the last Islamic caliphate fell in 1924 and it's incumbent on them as the new generation of jihadis to resurrect it, to resurrect this for the glory of their version of Islam. This is the powerful idea that's being taught to Uyghur Muslims in a camp in Syria. You know, the, the point is that this is called global jihadism for a reason. They don't view it as one theater. Global jihad means that it's all connected to the same war and that jihad in Syria is just as obligatory as jihad in Yemen as it is in Afghanistan as it is in Africa. That's what it means to be a global jihadist. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going after the West at any given moment. It means that you see it as all a religiously mandated and justified global jihadist cause. And there's an another aspect to this, and Tom is absolutely correct. And so – Al-Qaeda organizes itself to reestablish the, the global caliphate. Again, we may think this is a fantasy, but that's how their organization, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in East Africa, Al-Qaeda in, in the Islamic Maghreb, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. So by us failing to recognize the organizational structure for what it is, it makes it difficult to target. It makes it difficult to understand who are the important leaders, who are the ideologues that are important, all of these things. So there are second and third order effects. You know, our leadership wants to fight the war. It wants, it wants to fight and refuses to fight the war that the enemy is actually fighting. And that just has enormous problems. And it's, it's one of many reasons why we're losing this war. And if you understand the war the way you've just described, you can be a strategist because a strategist can say this front is absolutely essential, this front is not. I mean, in World War II, it was not obvious that we were going to fight in North Africa unless you understand the role of oil and that you had to stop the Germans from getting oil and therefore we we're going to fight in North Africa before we we're going to fight in Europe. That was more important. Um, not every battlefield is equal. We don't have to win on every battlefield, but we have to have a strategy that lets us win on the key battlefields, sure. and that's what we don't have. In terms of there being a caliphate, I just argue that you, uh, being a new caliphate, you know, the, uh, we're moving into the future very quickly, but in a way we always have. You see in 1924, the Ottoman Empire, the great caliphate, uh, for hundreds of years collapsed. It did. In 1925, the British Empire was mighty in the world yeah, like no one had seen. Twenty Quickly. years later, the British Empire was collapsing. Now, the collapse of the British Empire was not calamitous for the British people because they could hand the mantle of leadership and responsibility to the U.S. The problem is that if the U.S. gives up the mantle of leadership, to whom do they pass it? To Denmark? To the Swiss? 
No, they, they, there is not a free country to which they can pass it that is powerful enough to take it. Those who want to take it include China, Russia, Iran. That's going to be a very different world for our children if that's what we get. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I when I talk about the caliphate as a fantasy, what I mean is it's not going to function the way they envision it or talk about it. But that doesn't mean it can't inspire a whole lot of violence or exist in some form going forward. It very much could, you know, and things do change quickly. And of course, as we saw with Islamic State, they grew very quickly into a physical caliphate where they controlled a significant amount of terrain, you know. Um, but the bigger point here, I think you're, you're getting at, Cliff, is that I, I think that ideas and the war of ideas motivates a, a very large portion of humanity. Um, it's not everything. You have socioeconomic factors. You have you know pathologies, mental instability. You have all sorts of craziness in humanity. Our species is far from perfect, right? But the, but the role of ideas is very very important. And the idea of America and Americanism is on its back foot right now. It's receding. It's not on the march. And the idea of individual style liberty and what we stand for is very much on its back foot. And I think you see a lot of adversaries and enemies who are circling and their ideas are not so much on the back foot. They may be actually advancing at our expense. And, you know, the Chinese certainly see it that way. They want to advance at our expense. They've been happy to have us tied up in these insurgencies where we're not even trying to win um, because it wastes resources and time and effort and distract us distract us from their more strategic game. The Russians are certainly happy. I mean, they just ho hosted a, a tal the Taliban in Moscow. I mean, just think about this. The, the group that grew out of the Mujahideen who vanquished the Soviets from Afghanistan um, now is being hosted in Moscow because they want to rub America's nose in it. That speaks to the power of a certain set of anti-American ideas, doesn't it? You know, and this is the point is that if we don't start conceptualizing it this way, that there is an America and a, a set of American ideas that are worth fighting for and promulgating, and I think we've gotten away from that, um, then others will fill the void. Give you the last word, Bill. Or yeah. I, I, I really will say amen to that, uh, Tom. I, I could not agree with you any better. Cliff, I believe it was you that wrote in a recent op-ed about how the, the, the natural state is really one of war and one of oppression. And the U.S., despite all of our failings and our imperfections, has been, you know, the light of democracy, of freedom for the, the past 70, since the end of World War II, right? Pr primarily. You know, we're watching this light dim and it's, it's, I fear for my kid, for my children. I fear for my soon to be grandchildren. This is something I, I do hope we can, you know, it extends beyond just the jihadist issue with Tom and I primarily focus. Failure in Afghanistan, failure of leadership there spreads. If our military can't win there, if it can't organize there to do things right, if our leadership can't get it right there, how do we think we're going to be able to take near peers like China or Russia if it comes to that? Um, these are the things that I worry greatly about. You know, I, I, I think that's right. I think it's a nice view that we live in a world of stakeholders and those stakeholders are interested in conflict resolution leading to power sharing. But I don't think that's the world in which we live at all. And I, I remember what George Orwell said, the quickest way of ending a war is to lose it. And I think we have to think about that very hard right now. Um, Bill and Tom, thanks very much for being on this program. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the future. This is not encouraging, but it's absolutely essential that we be candid about these kinds of subjects. And you have been. So thanks again. And thanks all of you for listening again here on Foreign Policy.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.